Hi, good afternoon. Nice to see so many of you on a horribly cold February day. February was never my favourite month. Um, I'm Miranda McKerney. I'm your chair for this session. Um, I'm director of the Reading Agency, um, a charity that does a lot of work with public libraries to spread reading. So this event is all about how literature and reading industries are faring in the current economic climate and how technology and social trends are changing the way we engage with reading. You could argue that the publishing industry has um, seen its worst decade for years, um, dramatic collapse of borders at the end of last year, everyone very interestingly struggling to find a new business model in the face of a what you could describe either as a kind of very toxic mix of the recession and, and the digital Wild West or unprecedented opportunities for literature and the word. <coughs> and in between all this, there's very interesting evidence of increased public interest in literature. Uh, festivals are booming. We've just done a survey of library-linked reading groups, and they've trebled in the last four years. Um, so we have three great speakers with us here tonight to explore all that, um, and I'm going to ask them each to talk for a bit, and then we'll throw open the questions to you. So first up, um, if we could have John Lanchester, who will need no introduction, um, I'm sure, to most of you, um, particularly if you've been reading reviews in the newspaper lately. Um, Whitbread winner, um, Debt to Pleasure, latest book, Whoops, um, relevant book, Whoops, for tonight. Um, and he writes about, uh, he talks about Whoops, which you can tell them, John, as being um, the best story he's ever found because it's a different way of exploring what the hell went on in the financial crisis we've just had. So, John, over to you. Uh, I'm going to speak. Can you can you hear me at the back? Yeah, okay. Um, I've just got new glasses. They're very focals, and uh, haven't quite got used to them yet. So if I seem to be swaying backwards and forwards <laughs> and struggling to um, focus on my text, it's it's myopia rather than tequila. I promise. Um, one of the odd things about the book business is that things often aren't quite as they seem in it. Um, one of its paradoxes is that. Um, when times are hard, the number of books published goes up. Um, it's because um, the basic model for books is that about 90% of them lose money. Um, it's not so odd. 90% of new products in most industries lose money. Um, but that the, um, because royalty rates are quite low, uh, when you do get a hit, it pays for everything else. Um, and um, the, the cash from the winners pays for the losers. That's the basic model of publishing. Um, and one of the odd things that happens is when times are hard and publishers lose their nerve, they publish more books. You get more, not necessarily firm by firm, but in aggregate across the industry. Um, because people, instead of backing books and backing their judgment, just bring out more of them, hoping for the elusive example of one that will stick. Um, and many, many times in recent years, publishers have spoken of, I think Bloomsbury said, if they published one fewer book, uh, in whichever year it was, 1990, whatever, that book would have been, the book that dropped off the list would have been first Harry Potter. You know, and the, these things that um, turn into freak, outrageous, colossal winners 
are often very marginal and in retrospect um, have quite a lot to do with luck. So that's one of the paradoxes about publishing. Times are hard, more books are published. And that in turn, obviously, makes it harder. Um, the, uh, the raw numbers, I think, are slightly deceptive. Um, the book market in 2008 was 3.44 billion in the UK, 0.7% down on the previous year. And uh, in 2009, it was down another 0.5% in terms of volume and 1.2% in terms of value. So flat or slightly worse than flat. But that too, I would argue, is deceptive because you're not really comparing like with like. The single biggest event in the book trade in um, 2009, late 2008, was the collapse of Woolworths. Woolworth, when Woolworths went down, it took with it EUK, who were the distributor who supplied uh, the supermarkets, and who specialised, um, if you'll forgive me the phrase, they specialised in crap. I mean, they, they mainly published celebrity memoirs and supplied Tesco's and other big firms. And that simply went away. So the thing that collapsed in 2008 was essentially the market in crap. When you look at the fact that sales are then consistent, I think, um, given that the books that people had stopped buying were basically Colleen McCulloch's memoirs and things like that, um, I think it shows actually quite good growth for things that were actually real books. Because when you look at what's published, it's, um, there has been a significant shift in the market. More of it is worse than ever before. More of it is TV times, garbage celebrity memoirs, um, uh, semi-fictional misery memoirs, and uh, the quality and seriousness of the general publishing has sharply declined. So uh, the collapse of the UK, I think, actually means that publishing for, as it were, real works is in quite good nick. Um, independent bookshops, um, you'd have thought would be having a very hard time. They're up 10% last year amid the general mayhem. Uh, my own publisher, Alan Lane, um, his sales are up 20%. Um, and they publish in this and publish Adrian, in fact, and, and me. And um, uh, lots of books in the area of economics um, and, um, I suppose, broadly speaking, popular, serious books. And as I say, 20% is not too shabby in the context of a market that's in general flat. Um, another area that's absolutely thriving uh, is romance. Um, uh, in hardish times, people want comfort reading. And um, uh, the firms that publish things like Mills and Boone are having um, uh, uh, absolute bumper time. Um, one of the interesting things you notice is that with the early adoption of Kindle, Amazon's electronic reader, and e-books in general, um, they were very, I think they took themselves by surprise because the early adopters are disproportionately uh, professional women in their 30s and 40s who read a lot for work uh, and also quite often read escapist things, um, as it were, Twilight and Mills and Boone and things like that, uh, but don't always want it to be very obvious what they're reading. So they're very keen adopters of Kindle. And the great thing about that's where Mills and Boone on a Kindle is that you don't have to keep a book. You finish your escapist thing and you just delete it and it's gone. Um, so this is curious thing that um, uh, e-books skew towards business and romance at the same time. Uh, the short answer to the issue, though, about how literature is in, in recession is that um, the spotlight, I think if I had to sum up the condition of British publishing, is that the spotlight is brighter and the dark is darker. If your book does well, it will sell more copies than ever before. Um, the uh, focus on the things that are already doing well is really consistent across the industry. But it's much, much harder at the margins 
it's harder to break through. And the basic thing that all writers want is a, a moment in which they feel their book is actually published. Just a moment when it sort of, as it were, steps on the stage. And you can't want to be praised and applauded to have people buy your book. It seems to me you can legitimately want just that moment of standing there and the audience boos or walks off or claps or comes forward or ignores it or whatever, but just that moment of possible attention. And the truth is that most books don't get that. 133,000 books published in the UK every year. The overwhelming majority of them never have that moment of even possible attention. And that seems to me unfortunate. And it seems to me that that's not going to get better. What might get better in the middle term, in the middle distance, is that as publishing moves to a digital model, is higher royalties, which is good news for writers, and a lower cost base, which is going to be very difficult for publishers to achieve. Um, and I think it's going to be an okay position for writers who are already up and running. I think it will be a dark and difficult stretch from here to there. Um, I don't know whether that's, we're talking about five or ten years. Um, but I noticed my book in America it was um, on the extended bestseller list in the New York Times and it wouldn't have been there without e-books. So I've gone from being someone who thought that digital was some <laughs> way off to thinking that digital has already arrived. Um, it was a, I'm not allowed to say the proportion, otherwise Amazon will kill me, but it was a significant proportion of sales. Um, so the future is arriving very rapidly. Um, and as I say, the middle distance is okay, short term is going to be very bumpy. And it's going to be particularly hard for new writers it's going to be particularly difficult to shoulder your way onto that metaphorical stage. And that, I think, is what publishers are increasingly going to be for. Spotting the new, identifying the new, exercising their taste, and giving things a chance to, as I say, step in front of an audience and wait for the applause or the boot. Thank you very much. Wow, wow what a great start. Thanks. Um, next, we're going to hear from Andrew, um, Andrew Franklin, who's the publisher and managing director of Profile Books, um, and you will probably uh, remember Profile from Lynn Truss's Eat, Shoots and Leaves. I never know quite how you should say that, take it aloud. <laughs> um, and Profile is growing, interestingly, despite, um, or perhaps because of, publishing original, stimulating stuff. So, Andrew... What you, are you, do you want to go there? Yeah, I think I'll stay here. Um, it's always very intimidating following um, John Lanchester because he, he's such a brilliant and astute journalist. I read everything that he uh, writes and uh, I'm always amazed at the breadth of his understanding and uh, his penetration of my own trade. Uh, yesterday, um, there's, a, there's a trade magazine publishing called an EU newsletter that comes around and it, and it reported yesterday that January the month that we've just had was the worst January for 16 years because it was only 1.2% up on the preceding January mm. or in strict comparative terms it was 0.7 down if you took like for like in, in retail. The, the overall story in the, in the recession in the short term is that books have been largely unaffected and that times are good. Obviously the recession, obviously people are spending a bit less but they're not spending disproportionately less than on books and it's really very hard to to measure as John said precisely what is happening some publishers are doing well and guess what that's because they're publishing interesting books and they're doing a good job 
and some publishers are doing badly and my heart never um, I never shed a tear when I see that of the large groups it's Rupert Murdoch's HarperCollins that is suffering the worst that always um, pleases me and uh, much better publishers are doing well and it particularly pleases me that independent publishers like independent bookshops are doing well the, the reason that books should not suffer particularly badly in recession I think is quite obvious they are staggeringly inexpensive form of recreation it's always been the case uh, certainly for the last 30 years that the price of a paperback is more or less matched by an you know, inexpensive bottle of wine what um, Dennis Healy would have called a half decent bottle of claret so you can now buy if you want to a paperback from Amazon or in the supermarkets for £4 and if you want to buy a Tesco special offer you know, Tesco uh, value you could buy a bottle of wine for three ninety nine as well but you'll get much longer and more enduring present pleasure from the book and long after the, bin, the bottle's gone to recycling you'll still be um, enjoying the effect of the book. So books are quite extraordinary value. John mentioned the, the very uh, sorry, I think Margaret mentioned the great success of literary festivals at the moment. I'm on the board of the Edinburgh Book Festival. We were talking about our ticket prices. The ticket price for an adult event at the Edinburgh Book Festival, that's to see John Lanchester appear and talk for you get you get more of John if you go to the Edinburgh Book Festival. But you get forty five minutes of John, fifteen minutes of uh, questions and you'll pay nine pounds. Uh, this year's price, but you'll be able to buy his book in paperback next year from Penguin for the same price, and it'll take you more than 45 minutes to read, or you could buy it at much less than that from Amazon. So books represent extraordinary value. For me, the big question is, what are the underlying reading trends? And that's much harder to discern. One of the pleasures of reading is that you can spend a great deal of money and you can buy beautifully produced hardbacks, or you can do it for nothing. You can go to the library, you can borrow a book from a friend, you can look on your shelves and you can read something that you've been meaning to read for, for ages. So you, reading's one of those activities rather like, I suppose, drinking wine. You can pay more or less exactly what you want to, or you can, you can pay nothing. So I think the recession is something of a distraction, and what is interesting to try and discern is the much bigger longer-term trends taking place in, in reading activities and in the whole process of creating books. And the trends, it seems to me, are two, of course, that you know, if you're a Marxist, they're material, they're technological, but there's also the wider cultural trends. There's a high moment of reading as a mass activity, rather as there's a high moment in perhaps newspapers and television as a mass activity. So from 1935, Penguin is formed, you have the BBC under Lord Reith, you have uh, all, all this great moment of this ideal of reading as a mass activity, and I'm not sure that that is not in decline, uh, and John um, alluded to that, and I'm not sure that we're not seeing the contraction of reading as a mass activity, particularly at the margins, as John was saying, at the supermarkets, and people willing to substitute reading when they're not fully committed. The, the large percentage of the population, half the population, who read two or fewer books a year. If you only read two or fewer books a year, it doesn't make a big difference in your life if you drop that to zero. But if that's half of the reading population, it has a significant impact on numbers. Quite a significant cultural shift. And you can see that they will be substituting books for other obvious cultural activities, you know, computers and all of those things and games. So I think that's the, the bigger social trend. It's extremely hard to discern, almost impossible to measure, just a hunch. And then there's the, the huge technological changes taking place. That big number of books that are published, this absurd number, 130,000 books, which obviously nobody needs, is the technological consequence of the fact that it's never been easier to create a book. 
Now, anybody, as you know, can self-publish. If you want to put up your, your recipes, if you want to power up John's book, if you want to put up your family memoir, whatever it is, you can self-publish it onto the internet at zero cost. There are publishing institutions that have been set up to do this. That will count, or, or not, not that, in that particular pocket of self-publishing, but parts of that self-publishing industry count towards that huge number of books that are published. And then there's the whole apparatus of academic and technical and scientific publishing, where the publishing is not for an audience, but it's in furtherance of the academic career, and that generates huge numbers of books. Actually, the number of real books that are published with a real audience in mind by real writers has not changed so much. I mean, it is a horrific number. There's 5,000 new novels published a year. That's 100 a week. Nobody needs 100 novels a week, but it's still it's a much more steady, steady and manageable number. So it's technology that's increased the number of books. When you increase the number of books, paradoxically, you make the matter of choice very much harder. How will people know what to read of those 130,000 books that are published a year? And that seems to me why, as a publisher, I'm quite um, confident of my future. I would not be confident if I were a bookseller, I'll come back to that, but I am confident of my, publisher, of my role as a publisher because it needs somebody to, to make the selection and choose to assert through their brand name, whether it's Oxford University Press or Penguin or Virago or Profile or Faber, to assert um, the quality of the book, to lend their name and support, and then actively and aggressively to market that book to make sure that the, the author gives up his Friday evenings on platforms to sell his book to a potential audience. Um, and all of those things which, which only publishers can do. You need an intermediary to separate you out from that 130,000 other people who are publishing books that year uh, and to make sure that your, yours goes to, to the front. And of course other people could do it and there may be other intermediaries but for the moment it seems to me that publishers are the best, the best equipped to do that. Bookshops is clearly another matter. Um, John referred to the collapse of the UK and then this year of course borders went under and there's another big chain, uh, not in this country, but in Ireland, that is teetering on the edge, uh, and there probably will be other bankruptcies this year. Retailing is a nightmare business to be in, and it doesn't matter if you're in, if you're in fashion, or if you're in uh, spirits, or if you're in anything. You all know about the problems of the high street versus the out-of-town superstores versus the internet. That is the problem of bookshops, and it's no different from everybody else in the high street, and that is why borders went under, and... Um, Woolworths were part of that same same trend. It wasn't particularly to do with books. And then, of course, the rise of Amazon is, is an extraordinary phenomenon, now on the cusp of being superseded by, by e-books. And for, for publishers and for writers, that's the huge question. John is optimistic of bigger, bigger royalties on e-books. I don't personally believe it's going to happen, not only because there's a straightforward... In most places, publishers and authors move in lockstep wanting the same things but there is of course a conflict about how you divide the revenue that comes in and publishers are going to fight very hard to keep a high share of the revenue on ebooks because our argument which we believe by the way is that the purchase of an ebook is a substitution for the purchase of a physical book so if you don't buy the new book for £10 or for £15 as a hardback or paperback you'll buy it as an ebook and the costs for us are not in the costs of making and distributing, it's in the marketing and the brand promotion and the pushing of the author, and so we're going to need to keep the revenue. Um, but it is clearly going to affect the way that people read, it may affect what they read, and it's going to affect how they buy books. So I think we are on the cusp of some very big changes, but I don't think they've got anything to do with the, the short-term recession. And I started by telling you that, that January was bad because it was only a little bit up, 
there was another report in the same e-newsletter saying that um, there appeared to be quite a lot of activity in the job market in uh, publishing and the literary agency sector, which was encouraging, because last year there were a very large number of redundancies in the big publishers. They laid off a lot of people very cruelly, uh, and which is what big companies always do, of course. Now they're back in the market recruiting again. So I don't want to say the future is rosy, but it certainly isn't one of um, gloom and despondency. Thank you. Um, and then Adrian Wildridge, um, the Economist Management Editor and the Schumpeter Columnist. Um, the, the book that's probably most relevant to today um, is his book, The Company. Very interestingly, argues um, that the company has become the basic unit, the most powerful institution of modern society. Um, Adrian, over to you. Well, it's rather difficult uh, to come third, as I thought I'd come here with a con contrarian argument. I've upset <laughs> everybody by presenting the contrarian argument that things don't actually look all that bad. And now, far from being a contrarian, I'm just following the herd of uh, like minds here. Um, I'll just try and put a slightly different gloss on things. Um, I think there are, you know, there's very good reasons for thinking that times are going to be very hard uh, in the publishing industry and sort of in the intellectual world in general. Um, partly because of uh, technology driving down profit margins um, and reducing, I think, the perceived value of books. If books start being sold for 9.99 or 5.99 or 2.99 the perceived value of the thing you're buying does actually go down. Also, technology provides um, a lot of other sources of entertainment. So these people who used to read two books a year, if they're, if they're being strenuous, will now have even less reason to read those two books because there are so many other sources of activity. And the other threat, I think, to the intellectual world and to the publishing industry is taste. Um, you know, you have the rise of the blockbuster, the rise of these ghastly celebrity books and chefs celebrity chefs and Nigella Laws and the rest of this crap. Um, and the, the combination of technology and taste, I think, is a fairly lethal combination in some ways. And it's doing a lot to squeeze out middle talent or rising talent or aspiring talent, um, which is a problem. Now, I, I sympathize with that. Um, you know, there's nothing more repulsive than seeing these books by by celebrities, um, you know, we can talk about the Nigella Lawsons of this world. I particularly hate seeing books by Malcolm Gladwell. That makes me really angry. <laughs> because he, he's the same sort of thing, only more, actually, more tendentious. As at least Nigella Lawson's recipes work, um, I'm told. Uh, I don't cook. Um, but um, I do actually think that this, 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 this rather dismal view of things is wrong. I am optimistic, but for slightly different reasons from what's, what's been said before. Um, Partly because I think um, the publishing industry is actually, of all the sort of um, communications industries, is actually doing remarkably well. It's doing better than others. If you look at the record industry, it's imploded. Um, I don't lament that, but it has imploded. If you look at the newspaper industry, it's, you know, you're seeing very, very substantial reduction in sales. I do lament that, but for entirely personal and selfish reasons. You know, the Daily Telegraph is now not worth the paper it's written on. It's not a newspaper anymore. The Guardian, which is a much better newspaper, is, 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 is suffering very uh, seriously. Uh, the Independent, ditto, it's not anymore a serious newspaper. Um, and th that's, a, that's, I think, a real problem for, uh, for our inter uh, collective intellectual lives. But actually, the book publishing industry is doing very well at this time. I, I, I constantly go to the book cupboard at The Economist, where we get given 
we get sent books by publishers and most of them aren't reviewed so they're putting this book covered and I go and look at them and I'm amazed by the, uh, the number and the quality and range and you know, a lot of them are interesting to people who have quirky interests like me um, and lots of them are really good you know, there's a lot of very good stuff being published um, if you look at the, the response of the publishing industry to the recent recession, you have a whole, I haven't read John's book, but you have a whole, I've just read John Cassidy's book on the same side, which is extremely good. You have an extraordinary range of very good pu books published remarkably quickly, dealing with important subjects. I've just read Heilemann's book on the American election. Excellent. That first rate, one of the best uh, books I've read on, the, on any uh, election. Uh, to some extent, I think even the, the, the problem of these, you know, the Nigella Lawson and the blockbusters and all that sort of stuff is, 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 is slightly a British problem. I, I, you know, I lived in America for a great deal of time. Going into American bookshops is a joy compared to going into, into um, British bookshops because there's a whole ethic of seriousness. There's more serious books, and the books that sell really well in general, um, there's more serious books that sell really well in general, I think, over there than here, and there's not quite the same appetite for junk as far as I can see, although many people are here, I'm sure think the opposite would be true. Um, I think it's important to distinguish between the problems of the publishing industry, which, is, uh, w w which may come with the, with the e-book, uh, driving down the cost of things, and the situation for readers, because what may disconcert producers is actually rather, quite often rather good for consumers. I mean, it's never been better in many ways in the history of the world to be a reader of books. You can download on your Amazon machine... Um, the entire works of Dickens, I believe, for about a, a dollar a pound. Um, you've got an incredible range of cultural, literary products that are, that, are, that are coming out all the time. You have blogs, most of which are nonsense, but some of which are very, very good. You have websites. You have these wonderful aggregators. I look at the real clear politics. I can read anything I want about American politics, which I'm interested in, just for nothing, every morning. I look at the browser, Robert Cottrell's thing, you know, and I don't have to go to the trouble of looking through the... London Review of Books or all the rest of these things or the New York Review of Books or any of these things because Robert reads them and you know, tells me what's good so you know, in many ways as a consumer of intellectual products life is uh, fantastically good I think um, the strongest argument produced by the pessimists is the argument about the middle market I think that the market will be segmented between niche products and blockbusters and there won't be that much effort put into nurturing young, new, aspiring talent. I think that's a, a, a serious argument. Um, I'm not certain that it's right. I'm not certain how much... Um, I think what you have is a long tail. You have uh, a large number of products, a much larger number of niche products being produced uh, than you've ever had before through self-publishing, through self-promotion, through smaller publishers, through e-publishers and the rest of it. And I think the mechanisms that are there for that work to be taken up, selected, um, I'd rather rely on them than relying on a small cast of publishers to see who is the next great person because they tend to say, who is the last Harry Potter? Oh, well, let's get another person who writes about wizards and things like that. Not to be rude about publishers, but that's the way it is. Um, I think there are better market mechanisms are better in terms of, uh, uh, of promoting books. People can, can create their own platforms. We heard about platforms before through blogs, through you know, various other ways of self-promotion. They develop... Um, quite loyal, passionate followings out there in the intellectual community. If they're good bloggers, if they're performing uh, in an agile and interesting way every day, they tend to build up followers over time. They publish books and they, those, those books have uh, a following that's been built up. So I think if I was offered a choice between two models, one 
of the publishing world nurturing talent and one of this long tail with a lot more mechanisms for nurturing talent. I'd rather have the second than the first, so I'm not as worried about the, the middle market and the promotion of talent um, as I might be, but I think it's a serious argument unlike most of the others. Uh, and I think I'd like to say just one last thing. Um, if we're thinking about the future of publishing and intellectual life in general, which is I don't think that we should have too narrow uh, or London-based view of these things because what we've had over the last few decades is the amazing explosion of wealth and opportunity in India and China in particular in the developing world um, and they're moving now to a new stage of development where there's much more emphasis on intellectual capital, much more investment in universities, much more investment in, in, in education. We're seeing the development of a, a huge global middle class of people. So it may be the case that many people in this country read, if they're lucky, two books a year. But now there are millions and millions and millions of people coming into this sort of global literary market around the world who will be reading voraciously, who will be customers of... Of, uh, of publishers and who will also be producing uh, the novels and um, blogs or e-books or whatever you want to call for the future. So I think the combination of a digital revolution which makes it easier to, um, for writers to write and distribute them, their books um, and the rise of a whole emerging market of producers and consumers uh, of books, people who've been trapped in poverty and are now becoming middle class and, 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 and getting access to, 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 to a world of literature and culture means really that we are in for a pretty bright future, actually. Yeah. Much more optimistic, all of you, than I was um, anticipating. Really interesting. And um, I think it'd be interesting to hear from you now um, whether you're as optimistic about the trends um, as our three speakers. So if we could um, take questions in batches of three and then we'll throw them open um, to our speakers. There are some people with mics. Over there. Oh, one there, one there. Thank you. Um, it's very interesting. I was wondering actually, um, one thing about, you spoke about technology and the hard times and, and all of that. I think, um, in my opinion, what's happened now is that people have, maybe I'm wrong, I'm talking about myself actually, have a shorter attention span. We're used to browsing, we're used to surfing. So if you go into a bookshop and you see a book that looks interesting and it's not that many pages, 100, 150 pages, compared to another book which may be just as interesting but has three, 400 pages, you might not be inclined to read that because maybe your attention span, you know, you'll get bored with something else. And I think um, because of hard times at the moment, we are being exposed to more kind of diversity and creativity because I think because of hard times, there's just an opportunity to be creative to some extent. So I wondered if you think that um, you could argue that maybe... Um, because of the kind of 21st century that we're in, that people are more likely to maybe read shorter books than longer books. I don't know what you think about that. Thank you. And there's one down here. Hi, um, I'm from the US, and my dad actually owns a publishing business <laughs> there, and he has a much more dismal view on the future of publishing. Um, and I just had a few questions. You mentioned blogs. 
you mentioned blogs, and um, I, I, I think blogs are great too, and it's it's great to hear a plurality of opinions. But um, I, I just think that the if no one is accountable for information, um, if there if information isn't being vetted by publishers anymore, then the quality will suffer, and it might be hard to trust. Um, and so I think that's a major problem with blogs that you're sort of overlooking. Um, and also, um, when you talk about emerging markets in China and India, I think you might be over-anticipating the growth of a middle class, and also they are master bootleggers. So I don't necessarily see um, Western bookstores opening up there and having huge markets and growth because uh, I don't know that the people will want to pay, especially as the internet, you know, um, spreads in those areas. So um, I just wondered if you could think about those questions, the other panelists who didn't address those issues. That was five questions. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting stuff. Anybody else before we... Yeah, down here. Oh, we'll come to you next. I was really interested uh, by a point that John Lanchester raised, uh, that it would be increasingly the publisher's role to... Um, to place books in the spotlight, and because it's harder and harder to do that, um, that'll be increasingly the, the, the value the publishers can add. Um, but to kind of compare and contrast that with, uh, with what Adrian was saying about um, elite coterie of publishers picking more books about uh, vampires and, uh, and wizards uh, versus the long tail, <laughs> how ready do you think publishers are for that challenge? Um, I mean, just to compare it to the record industry, it's, it's, it's often a complaint of uh, bands that, that record labels are singularly bad at finding markets and, and, and uh, reaching them and promoting them, even though that's seemingly their, their core function. Great. Shorter attention spans, blogs, issues of quality. Is aging wrong about global markets? And are publishers ready? Well, John, can we start with you? On, on the shorter, I, I, I don't know if there's evidence about books. I do know, um, uh, I have a chum who works for the Times, and they did some top-secret research, which I'm now going to share with you, um, about younger people. I can't remember what the age cutoff was, but people under this age cutoff, um, above it, people read the headline and then start reading the open paragraph. And below it, I think it might have been 35, um, they read the headline. Then they look for... Um, points, you know, those bullet points. Then they looked at what are called pulled quotes, those things that are in um, a different typeface, like a darker typeface. And then they start reading the piece. And this was about five years ago, and I don't know if you've noticed, um, basically all the papers do that now. And that's a direct response to uh, actually physically changed reading habits, actually physically looking differently at the page. Remember when USA Today launched, I don't know if anyone here remembers that, and everyone mocked it for this, you know, boxes and points and quotes thing and now all the papers do that um, and that is actual measurable shift in just literally how people's eyeballs hit the page. I'm not sure if that's shown up in the book world yet but it would be surprising if it didn't. Um, on the second one, uh, the non-accountability of blogs is a real issue um, but I think, I think Adrian's right that you know they're clearly going to be very important at driving book, the book trade and traffic and um, the, you know, the horrible phrase uh, the attention economy um, but I think there's going to be a sort of ruthless Darwinian competition for the, the, the good ones to drive out of the bad I think um, uh, and you know unaccountability and um, uh, pernicious anonymity which is a big thing on the internet um, will increasingly I think you know, traffic would go to the sites where 
you can tell who it is who's talking to you. Um, you don't mind them having an agenda because you kind of partly go there for an agenda. It's like the political biases that newspapers have. Um, it overlaps with the third point, I think. Um, publishers are rubbish about the web and about the um, new kinds of marketing that are necessary. And I think that, I think that uh, an opportunity is being missed to think of publishing as being on the web too. Actually, what most writers want is you just want your publisher to hold your hand and tell you what to do about the web. And so, as you, want, you know, the book is one manifestation of it and all the marketing and all the uh, promotional and all the opportunities that the web gives it would be wonderful if they did that too. You know, we're doing this with print, we're doing that on the web, we'd like you to do the other to help. Uh, and they don't do that. And actually, I think, um, uh, I'd be interested to know what you think about this, but I think if someone came along and offered effectively a kind of internet-based suite of publishing services, that that would be a real issue for lots of publishers because they just don't do it. Um, I think that goes to the third question. I mean, I'll come back to that because I think it's a really interesting point about publishers um, both having to put books into the spotlight and also always going for the same thing again. But it seems to me that the market will prove the publishers right or wrong. If they, if they are very banal and they do just go for yesterday's trend, then they will suffer uh, in the way that some publishers suffer and they will see their market share and their sales fall. And if they pick good books with taste and judgment based on quality rather than simply on short-term consumer facts, then they are much more likely to succeed. And I think that's exactly what happens. And I think, you know, quality in... I do believe that in the end that uh, quality will will out. Um, do I think publishers are crap on the internet? Yes, I think on the whole they are pretty crap at it, actually. I don't think we understand it. I think, you know, the first printed book was uh, um, the 42-line uh, Bible, which Gutenberg printed in 1452 in Mainz. And basically, nothing changed in the way that we did our business from 1452 to about 2004. You know, we, I mean, you know, of course, there's been additional complications, but basically, we would take take the writer's work, we would print it, and we would flog it, and we would. Um, uh, that that's been our business. It's changed so fast, and we've been rather slow about it that I don't think we have been at the cutting edge of uh, cutting edge of what's happening on the internet. I, I think the real problem that we, I mean, speaking for myself and profile books that we find, is very hard to see how you make money on the internet because people won't pay for what they read on the internet. And we have not found a way, and, and you know, maybe it's because we're just not very good at it or not very bright or not very innovative, but we can't work out how we can make a return as a business and a marketplace, which is what we are, and pay our authors, which is what we must also do, when we sell things on the web because people won't pay to read on the web. And they show considerable reluctance to pay for e-books. There's a huge, huge problem with piracy that was referred to in China. It's a lesser problem in it's a massive problem in China and they come back into the general economy as well. So so for us the big problem is is, is how you monetize it. I do think we'll overcome it. I think there are various reasons to believe uh, that people will be willing to pay for it when, when the quality is there and when what they want and if we can adequately protect it. But I think I th I think there's a huge amount more innovation to come from publishers. And of course, if we as businesses, my business profile, Penguin and others, fail to make it and somebody else will make it, they will be the next generation of, of uh, businesses. And what publishers, like all businesses, magazines and newspapers, the same forget is that nobody owes us a living. And if we do a really good job and we sell the books that people want and we serve our authors well in distributing their books, we will survive and otherwise we won't. And it's pretty important that we remember that. I thought the attention span question was really interesting. And um, 
there are books that are published with people with very short attention span. The one that crossed my mind immediately when, um, when the question was being asked was Shots and Senator, which was just a book for people with zero attention span. It was a very clever way, visually designed, could only be published in book form, but it was a book for somebody who has attention span of about 0.7 of a second, I think. So publishers, I think, are onto that a bit like newspapers, really. Yeah, the attention span question is a very uh, good question. I was at a conference with um, the guy who runs Google, what's his name? Eric Schmidt, I think his name is, is, is that his name. Um, Eric, anyway, I called him Eric. Um, and he, he said that, um, you know, he's, he was asked about this attention span question, and he said that he thought that all children should be taught at school rote learning, and they should be taught to memorize long lists of dates and lengthy poems, just as he was which I think was a way of saying it's not our fault, it's the fault of the education system. Um, I think it is a problem, but on the, uh, in, to some extent, um, books, um, the publishing industry is responding to that. You have this, this sort of short books, the rise of short books, which I rather like. I think um, you know, quite a lot of books are too long, quite frankly, just as a lot of newspaper and magazine articles are, are too long. And also I think there is a sense of, you know, of saturation. People get absolutely saturated with these blogs and this... This, this short bursts of information, and they actually want an escape from it. So, you know, why not read George Eliot or something like that? You know, I, don't, I, I hope that's the case. Um, I, I think it is in my case, anyway. Uh, blogs, yeah, on the level of trust, it's, it, it, it's difficult because I don't think people read blogs thinking this is the New York Times. You know, they know that blogs have agendas. They know that blogs are written with a with a bias, or or, or, to, or to, you know that people have an axe to grind. They don't suddenly think, "Gosh, you know, this person is telling me that Sarah Palin is terrible and evil. I'm going to go and sue them because she's really great." They know that blogs are written with a, a point of view. The bootleggers. Um, that is a big problem in in China. I was once given. I, I think I was paid 150 dollars for. Um, um, the rights to a book I published actually on the company in China, and I thought, well, you know, this is not really very much money. And they said, you're lucky to get anything. I mean, it is a huge problem there, you know. I think in India, it's not, it's not so much of a, a problem. That's my sense. And I think that even in China, eventually, as uh, intellectual, as they become innovators themselves, intellectual property rights will become much more important uh, for them. Um, the long tail um, and publishers. It's going to be a, a, a strange example, but I do think that publishers, um, to some extent, control. To some extent, they they, they, they sort of control the star-making industry in the intellectual world, but they don't really control it or run it very well um, because they're a particular type of person who belong to a particular educational background and a particular sort of social class. They have a, you know a particular view of the world, which is quite narrow. Um, at a time when cultures are fragmenting, at a time when you know, you're getting more and more niche markets, um, and at a time when you have just more variety of opinion and culture in the world, they represent a, a very, very narrow segment of that. Um, and I think increasingly a lot of stars, a lot of success will be dri driven by communities of interest of people who come in through through the long tail, who uh, occupy certain niches, but there are enough of these people will come combine together to to represent a significant market, and there will be there will be a mechanism of creating stars that bypasses the established um, publishing industry and, the, and and that nexus of, of, of journals and magazines that are associated with it. 
And I'm going to give a very uh, bizarre example uh, to it because it's the only example I can think of. But I think it, it, it will have increasing relevance in the future, and that's what's happened to conservative right-wing publishing in uh, the United States. You have a publishing house called Regnery, which publishes, has, has published for years and years, right-wing uh, writers, conservative authors. Uh, these authors are never reviewed in the Sunday Times. These books are never reviewed in the Sunday Times. They're completely ignored by the uh, established media. But they have successively they've produced bestseller after bestseller after bestseller. So the only place you'll ever find about, out about them in the New York Times is by looking in the bestseller list, which, if you're an author, is a pretty good place to be looking. Um, and uh, that's obviously because they have these huge cultural divisions and these huge cultural wars. But this is driven you know, by the talk radios, by the blogs, by communities of passion and interest, and is completely you know, bypassed Penguin and the rest of these people. Although Penguin now is trying to set up their own influence right, to get onto, onto this. But I think we're increasingly going to see that sort of pattern uh, created in the future, not in just in the political arena, but in all other sorts of arenas, where you'll get enough of an aggregate of people with a particular passion or a particular interest or a particular viewpoint that they'll create their own star-making mechanisms, perhaps not so much in Britain because it's a small country, but I think uh, globally. Um, and publishers, unless they're very agile, and, and you know, will, will, um, will, will simply be put, pushed aside. So again, I see the long tail and the use of new technology as, as bypassing a lot of the traditional uh, you know, star-making uh, machinery. Can I make one point in response to Adrian? I think uh, Adrian and I agreed that we weren't going to say anything favourable about publishers before we came on. That's, that's the right thing. But actually, in, in sort of tentative defence of the industry, it is surprisingly diverse already. I mean, if you look at the two freak best-selling things of the last year or so, uh, one is um, by a, a Mormon housewife who turned to writing novels about a sexy vampire, and the other is by uh, uh, a dead campaigning socialist journalist from Sweden. Um, this, you know, it's quite. But they're not kind of from central casting. You know, um, good-looking people who you can nigerishly promote. I think there's a surprising amount of diversity in the trade, trade already. They've broken your plow. Yeah, no, I, I did. I did. <laughs> can I just ask you both before we take the the next questions, um, whether you're going to be able to tell Andrew how to make money on the web? I, I, I think I think you have to just treat it as a marketing thing for now until we work out how to make money out of it. I think it's useful as a marketing tool, but I agree for monetizing it. I thought the point of the web was to lose money. That's, what, that's <laughs> the model we have in, in, in journalism at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I've just been reviewing a book about Google uh, by Ken Orletta. Google had 150 different lines of products, you know, Gmail, the different stuff. One made money, targeted advertising. 149 of them lose money. So even the people who are coining money find it easier to lose than to make it. YouTube, by the way, which is everywhere in a gigantic hit, lost $500 million last year. So the web is the best thing ever invented for losing money. We're um, aiming to finish by 6.15 at the latest, so I'm proposing that we take three more questions um, and we'll start over there. 
Hi, I've got um, three questions. Um, first question. Yes. <laughs> we'll say them very fast then. I will do. do you think e-books will um, ever be able to penetrate the children's book market? Um, my second question, do you um, think there's space for another chain bookshop um, after the collapse of borders? Um, and my third question is, um, do you think we'll see an end to the heavy discounting in um, the supermarkets and on Amazon, which has ultimately affected independent bookshops, which are um, on the bookseller, I read they're closing at a rate of, I think, about four a week or something like that. Wow. Three. <laughs> we could be here all night. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, there was a question here, and then we'll take you. Quality will out, and also about Adrian's point on the, you know, the dumbing down of the Times and Telegraph. I just wonder if Adrian's finding a, an uplift in sales of the Economist and the FT, which you know, is a bit more quality than what the Times and the Telegraph have become. Right. And <coughs> final down here. I have just one question. Um, <laughs> Do you feel that there is more separation between different genres, like fiction, non-fiction, that uh, new books have to actually fall into very distinct boxes? This is um, historical um, fiction, or this is romantic comedy, uh, this is uh, celebrity cooking, um, or do you see more things which are coming up and more demand for more kind of um, complicated books which transcend different genres, say a uh, travel book which is also a little bit of a thriller, uh, maybe uh, um, some historical writing together with um, uh, fictionalized memoir, yeah, something which is not very um, sitting easily in a very distinct uh, publishing box. Yeah. And some people would argue that the, the boundaries between art forms will merge as well. Oh, Andrew, you first. Thank okay, you. I thought that th those are three really tough questions. Ebooks yeah. for children. Well, the big barrier for children, of course, is that um, early children, uh, early children's books, what publishers call picture flats, consist of 16 or 32 pages with a large illustration and then type underneath. And historically, publishers have always had fun publishing them because the pictures are always printed in four colours and the type underneath is always printed in black and they line up international publishers in uh, all languages that read from left to right, French and German and Italian and they print all the colour together and then they just substitute the different languages um, so it's always been a, a, a viable business the answer is I, I'm sure that ebooks for children will come at the point at which you can have very high quality illustrations but until then it's clearly, clearly impossible, I hope physical books will go on do I think there's space for another chain bookshop? I think that, as things stand, I do not think there's a space for a chain bookshop. And the reason is, is this. The high street bookshops are wedged between two phenomena which are almost impossible to match. On the one hand, there's the supermarkets, which give a very limited range of choice, uh, a maximum of 250 books, but normally uh, many fewer. But they're incredibly easy to buy. So if you're doing your weekly grocery shop, you can pick them up and they're massively discounted. So they cannot compete with that convenience and they can never compete on price because they don't have the buying power to buy from the publishers on the one hand. And on the other hand, they're wedged between Amazon, which has universal choice. So Amazon will guarantee to supply any one of a million titles in 24 hours. No chain bookshop can do that. Independents can survive because they can 
tailor themselves very carefully and precisely to the definite local market that they are. And we all know our own favourite local bookshops, London View Bookshops, uh, Bookshop, which uh, John is involved with, you know, which precisely tailors itself to the area. And the mechanics of running a big chain make it impossible, I think, to to service your your local the, the local community and, and buyers successfully. So I think as things stand, it's un. It's unlikely. And do I think there's going to be an end to discounting? Well, discounting only began as a deliberate act of, um, it's about 20 years ago, the end of the net book agreement. The, the net book agreement, which, which exists in almost all other European countries, but is an anathema to the, what the French call the Anglo-Saxon economic model, uh, but it still exists in newspapers and magazines, so these guys are the economists are protected. Uh, it required every retailer selling a book, as they still do in newspapers, every retailer to charge the same price. They were specifically forbidden by law to discount. That was consciously and deliberately abolished because it was believed that it was um, anti-competitive, which in a way, of course, it is. And um, the result of that was that discounting grew and grew. We have the consequences which we'd expect, which is supermarkets selling bestsellers, uh, big growth in the sales bestsellers, big fall off in the, and it's exactly what you expect from conventional economic food, big um, gap growing between the big bestsellers and the smaller tail, which aren't distributed and all those things. It could only, discounting could only end, it's a, it would be a political decision, it would be an act of will to reverse the, the mantra uh, preached by the free marketeers these guys, in fact, who believe that nothing should ever stand in the way of the market and we must all worship faithfully at its altar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I think you'd better come next, Adrian. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, discounting, yes, uh, that, that's not going to change. I mean, there's, there, there's going to be relentless downward pressure on prices, on costs through Amazon, through e-books and the rest of it. In fact, there's going to be, you know, going to be pretty universal in all sorts of commodities. So I, I think we're moving to a world of, you know, where, where cheap is king, and that's certainly the case in, 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 in books. I think it, it, the tailoring of these big chain bookshops to local markets, I think that they do that a little bit. I mean, the, I used to live in Washington. It was a very different um, Barnes & Noble in Washington from Barnes & Noble in New York. I don't see why they can't be tailored. They have different uh, different local books. They can get in different, you know, a different mix of of authors, uh, that doesn't mean I think there's room for another one. I don't think there is, but I, I, I don't think just because they're chain bookshops, they can't adapt to certain uh, local circumstances. Um, in terms of the, 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 the Economist versus the Times and the Telegraph, I, I think that I, I actually didn't say the Times because I think it's a much better newspaper than the Telegraph. I mean, the Telegraph is truly a dismal, dismal newspaper. But I think that you're, you're getting a bif bifurcation of the market basically where you've got a niche at the top where you can preserve a certain certain degree of, of, of quality and the mid-market is is, is, is is much more difficult and so people are tending to, 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 to dumb down quite a lot if they're occupying that, that mid-market. The other thing about the niche at the top is it's a global niche and I, I've said this before, I'll say it again, a lot of what's interesting, what matters about publishing and about the intellectual world is going to be shaped by globalization and by the incredible expansion of the number of educated, literate people around the world, which is going on, and we shouldn't be too myopic about this. The separation, the mixing of genres, yeah, yeah sure, that, that's going to go on, um, I hope, um, and um, intensify. I think it can often become a little bit formulaic. Um, as you know, we decide to apply fictional writing techniques, narrative techniques to 
to, 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 to fact and things like that. You tend to get, you know, a, a way of mixing genres which becomes quite rapidly a cliche. Um, but no, I mean, will people invent new ways of mixing these things together? If you can tell me what the next really big one is, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to write it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the current big thing is supernatural romances in the yes. train. Um, and Amish romances, apparently, are very good. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, on the separation of genres, I think one, a, a force that presses the other way um, is uh, the, power to, the pressure to market books. And um, the big bookshops very much like exact, they like to know what the slot on the shelf is and work backwards from that. And that exerts a pressure of kind of conformity and being like things that already exist. And one of the things I particularly notice, which has got much, much worse, is uh, how heavily books are gendered now. Uh, once upon a time, books were just books. Um, uh, Andy doesn't do this, but lots of publishers do. They, they might as well have a thing on the front saying, you know, four boys, four girls. Um, and I occasionally read, um, you know, I deliberately read across a range of things and sometimes read commercial fiction aimed at women just to see what's going on there um, and in the last five years or so um, I mean I couldn't care less what I'm seeing reading in public but actually that's got to the point where you feel sometimes slightly embarrassed it's bright pink, it's got someone tripping over and fishing a pair of knickers out of her handbag on the phone uh, and you just feel distinctly peculiar sitting there reading it in public um, and that you know, simply wasn't the case and I do think it has unfortunate consequences that feed back into the kinds of books that people um, are encouraged to write yeah, I mean, I'd like to add my support to that. Having recently published a book um, called God is Back, which was um, about the return, the revival of religion, but very much from a sort of political and sociological and international relations point of view, arguing indeed that these were you know, incredibly important. They all, they, 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 religious belief was an incredibly important thing in shaping the practical, you know, political... Uh, world. The, this was immediately by the by, by these by these stupid bookshops put into the theology section. As much as I said, this is not about theology. It's not Dawkins, it's not Hitchens. It's it's about a, a social and political trend. I couldn't get out of that, and you know that was that was it. You know, you're it's got the word box. box. So you're, it's in, in the box, and I, I it's the, it's the it's it's the bookshops really that's that's uh, the problem. I think yeah. they do that. I'd, I'd love it if there were a, 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 a... You couldn't have a massive national chain, but I think you could have one... Sometimes when I have this fantasy conversation with people in the business, argue about how many shops there could be. Uh, maybe maybe 30 in the UK, a sort of medium-sized... Um, I think the thing about book selling is it's actually the world's most badly paid talent business. It's actually a talent business like you know acting or football. You, it depends on very good people. And um, there are a finite number of them, but they are out there. Um, and uh, I think it could be done. It just couldn't be done massively. It wouldn't scale forever. I think, and for that reason, I think it'd be hard to get the, the money sufficiently interested because it wouldn't keep growing. Do you have a reason? And book change. Well, what John just said. As well, it were, sort of bigger, bigger daunts, you know. Well, yeah. daunts is... I mean, you know, that can be specific. Daunt is a fantastically successful chain with five bookshops, and um, uh, it does brilliantly. But it is in, you know, when you see those maps of where the most yeah. expensive property is, yeah. not just in the UK but the whole of Europe, yeah. he clearly studies those maps. But he's a genius, the guy. I mean, yeah. that's where he puts his shops. So that is not absolutely um, 
scalable, uh, and he does employ very talented booksellers, and he never discounts us, which is really attractive about those bookshops. And that tends to be true of the most successful of the independent bookshops, London Review Bookshop, Jaunt's, there's a new one open just around the corner of my office, they tend not to discount. And there's only a num finite number of places in the UK where you can, uh, you can get away with doing that. I thought the question about separation of genres was really interesting, because it goes to what is, you know, what is it that you're doing when you're writing a book? Are you, as an author, thinking, what is this genre? Why am I writing? Or are you doing what it is that you feel you've got to do? And you know, north, you know, there's the whole tradition of novels that start coming out of the room and they claim that come out of people's lives and childhoods, and then those drifting off into memoir. And I was intrigued to learn recently that in in France, memoir is published as fiction, and in this country, it's published as non-fiction. So mm. the same books are categorised differently, and that tells you something about memoir and something about France and Britain and something about about categories. So I think categories are about moved all the time. I, I'm with Adrian, I loathe those history books that try and sort of write in a sort of self-consciously writer style. And I can't bear it when you're reading a serious work of um, a non-fiction the author then puts themselves in and, and uh, weaves an elaborate story of how they how they uh, came to discover what they did. But that's you know personal foible and I hope other publishers don't share that view and will publish them if those books are interesting. But I think these things are always fluid. And the power of the bookshops to prevent and control that is is declining, there is more flexibility because the bookshops are only one outlet by by the way you say these yeah. books are sold. When somebody buys the ebook of your book on yeah. um, religion, the rise of religion and the states, they're not going to be buying by category, they're going to look under yeah. the title on Woolwich, and the same yeah. is true on, on, on the internet side. So the power of um, publishers to restrict that is limited. The question about Gender is interesting too because the single most th thing that publishers put most effort to when we're publishing is the cover. We spend hours and hours and thousands of pounds trying to get the covers right because that's the beginning of our advertising and our marketing campaign. We put the cover onto posters, onto our websites, all those things, and how we how we position the book. If you're going to be buying e-books and you're buying books from the internet another way, the cover goes, and so the the ways that publishers traditionally thought about marketing and positioning books are going to shift as well. And um, some of that hideous embarrassment is completely spared John. If he's reading on his uh, e-book reader, if he's reading whatever he's reading, we'll never know. It's My usually things about uh, cruel but handsome doctors and the misunderstood young nurses who love them. <laughs> <laughs> My former distinguished former colleague at The Economist, uh, Rob Cottrell, runs a bookshop in Riga um, and also runs a blog, which is extremely good, called The Browser, in which he selects, as I said before, selects what he thinks is interesting uh, in, 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 from the world of magazines. He also runs, he writes reviews on this blog, um, or gets other people to write reviews, different subjects every, every week, one, one, one day it's on the emerging, the emerging markets, the next moment it's on the financial crisis. And he also runs literary festivals in Riga, so I think he's a good category killer here. Somebody <laughs> who does all of these things. Great. Well, thank you. Here's to a, a future of dead categories. Uh, we, our host, when we arrived today, said um, you'll have no problems with the questions, and I think that's really true. So I'd like to thank the audience as well as our speakers because I think there's some really interesting questions, and I'm going to look out for red hats in the future. <laughs> Three killer questions in one minute. Great. Could you join with me in saying thank you very much to our really fascinating speakers.